talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine inviting the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Premier Doug Ford has won another majority in Ontario. It appears the tide has changed and Canadians want more stuff than fluff. Here's Scott Thompson. Don't be nasty. It's not nice. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton today. Will Weber on the board in the newsroom. Diana and Dave. All right. What a uh, fascinating day it was uh, as far as the election campaign yesterday. Not really. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, you know, it's funny how people say like there's a, the lowest voter turnout, it looks like, uh, in history of uh, Ontario elections. And it's like, well, yeah, everybody uh, in the NDP and the Liberals stayed home. Uh, clearly, uh, enough PCs showed up. Uh, so, uh, you know, you have to ask what did not motivate the listeners or sorry, the uh, the voters to come out and cast a ballot for the NDP or the Liberal Party. And as we saw in the last election, which had a massive voter turnout, it is when people want change. When people want change, they come out in droves. And when they're happy with the status quo, uh, a lot of times some people stay home. So uh, was it a dull election? Yeah, I think that's what the incumbent usually is looking for. So if you wanted feist, then that comes from the opposition. That comes from those that are trying to dethrone uh, the incumbent. And as I said yesterday, I I just think um, they were completely off the mark. They were fighting an election, uh, a pre-pandemic election and not a post-pandemic election. And I think they're using a lot of the same techniques and a lot of the same issues that they were back then. And they just don't resonate with people uh, in a post-pandemic world when the top five issues uh, as well as health care are our economic issues. And, and, you know, you've got to wonder what was the position on that. Um, and obviously there wasn't a lot there. All right. Uh, what came out of this, which is fascinating, is uh, that Doug Ford picked up more seats, 83 over his uh, past 63. And both the opposition leaders are now, are, are now out. So here's what uh, uh, Stephen Del Duca had to say. We'll play both these clips together uh, about uh, the premier and about uh, handing in his notice. I trust that the incredible responsibility of leading this great province will weigh heavily on Mr. Ford. I know that it would, would for me, because after all, it is a big deal. It's a big deal to be entrusted with the hopes and dreams of millions of people. It will, however, be a movement that will be led by a new leader. Earlier this evening, I informed our party president of my decision to step down from the leadership of our party, and I have asked him to meet with the executive to set a leadership contest for as soon as is reasonable. Uh, Stephen Del Duca, of course, lost his own seat and uh, I guess picked up one more than uh, Kathleen Wynne in the last election, but still not official party status. So obviously not a strong showing for uh, the Liberals. Uh, Andrea Horvath, uh, obviously the uh, NDP held on as the official opposition. And uh, here's what she had to say before also uh, stepping down. Uh, This in regard to cuts and, of course, uh, the opposition. The majority of Ontarians have not endorsed or supported the Conservative government. And I just want to say that Doug Ford needs to realize that. 
He needs to understand that Ontarians did not vote for more cuts and privatization of the things that matter the most to all of us. And on leaving. But tonight, it's time for me to pass the torch, to pass the baton, to hand off the leadership of the NDP. And you know what? It makes me sad, but it makes me happy because our team is so strong right now. All right, and uh, Doug Ford, the Premier, extending uh, his majority. Here was what he had to say last night on growth. This is my proudest achievement as a leader of this party, building a new coalition, expanding our base, creating a more inclusive party where everyone matters. Because never in our lifetime has it been more important for a party to represent all of Ontario. And what he had to say about new voters coming on board, both from the NDP and Liberals. What excites me the most, what just pumps me up, are all the new faces I see out there. I am so grateful for all your support over the years. It's what keeps me going. And, and to the people of Ontario, thank you. And on unity and uh, bringing everybody together. And Lord, don't we need that? The number one you know, message I want to get out, uh, it's time for unity. We want to make sure we unite this province, we want to move forward, because it's not us versus, versus people down the street, it's Ontario versus every jurisdiction in the world. All right, that is the Premier uh, and, uh, of course, the other two candidates uh, speaking last night and both Andrew Horbath and Stephen Del Duca announcing they are stepping back as leaders of the party. Both those parties uh, will have leadership campaigns coming up in the future. All right, uh, fascinating night. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. Uh, this hour, I'm uh, going to talk to uh, Oshwegan Speedway as they get their season underway this year. Also, Andy Fantus is going to join us, former Hamilton Tie Cat, on uh, the beginning of of the new season as well. Uh, Elliot Tepper going to be joining us and talking about uh, Chinese jets buzzing the Canadians. More on that. It's all coming up on Hamilton Today. As we head into the summer of 2022, uh, the great news is things are opening up and stuff is going on, and we want to throw the spotlight on a uh, local legend, a local track, a local uh, dirt track uh, on Six Nations. Oshwegan is celebrating its 25th anniversary of Friday Night Excitement, and uh, I I became exposed to dirt racing. You know, I'm a dirt fan, or sorry, I'm a car fan, I'm a, I'm a motorhead, but I, I've never really been exposed to dirt racing, and that's my own ignorance, until just prior to the pandemic, and then, of course, everything shuts down, and you know what happened, and uh, then over the course of the pandemic, I discovered Friday Night Thunder on the APTN network, and uh, now I'm hooked. So let's bring in Clinton Jeffrey, General Manager, Racing director uh friday night operations at uh speedway and with us now clinton thanks for the time i hope you're well thank you it's great to be here so talk about the uh this season and getting underway this weekend and and what you got planned for your 25th anniversary well first off it's a gorgeous day out here at the speedway all our staff and crew are ready here welcoming everybody back for the first time in almost a thousand days it's been 973 days since our last race and if we had it rained out tonight, we would have got till next, till a thousand next week. But we're super excited to have everybody back. The Steyer's family here have done amazing work to improve the facility in the past two years. And although we were closed down because of the pandemic, 
we certainly didn't waste that time. And uh, our fans, when we come back, are going to see a whole bunch of new teams ready to go, a whole bunch of uh, new improvements here at the Speedway. And we, uh, we feel it's the best bang for your family entertainment buck you're going to find anywhere around here in southern Ontario on a Friday night. All right. So as I mentioned, I got hooked on this watching uh, Friday Night Thunder. Talk a little bit about the history of the Speedway and the Styers family and, and, and how they've kept this all going. Yeah, so our uh, kind of leader, Glenn Styers, there always wanted a, a racetrack in his backyard, and he built one 26 years ago, and here we are now. This will be our 25th season kicking off today, so that's a big thing for us. It's been a lot of success, obviously, and the Styers family have built Oshweekin into a world-renowned facility. Anywhere you go in the world racing uh, realm, you're going to find that Oshweekin is out there. Everybody knows where it is, and they've done a really great job, and some of the other media stuff we've been working on are things like the Friday Night Thunder television show on APTN, which really shows a, a great light of behind the scenes and what it takes to put this race thing yeah. together every week. We're super proud of that. The other thing we want to tell our, your listeners tonight, if they can't get out tonight, they can log on to the Speedway at oshweekinspeedway.ca, or if they go to gforcetv.net, they can watch all the racing live tonight for free on the Internet. So it's a YouTube-based platform, and that's gforcetv.net. And uh, I, I'm with you. Once you see it, once you experience it, it hooks you. If you're any kind of gearhead, whether it be vintage cars or motorcycles or anything, once you see what we do here, you're going to come back every Friday. All right, uh, Clinton, I'm an old NASCAR guy, so uh, obviously we've seen what's happened there and uh, the resurgence of dirt, which is where all of that started way back when. And and are you seeing like a new focus on dirt track racing? I know you're, you're hosting a NASCAR Pinty's race this season as well. Yes. So we definitely have seen everything in the racing world pick up. We have seen a big resurgence with NASCAR going to Bristol with the dirt. That has made a lot of people more aware of the dirt situation. And we've had a lot more inquiries about it. I think all the dirt fans know how amazing that NASCAR Pinty's race is going to be when the Canadian series comes to the dirt for the first time in their history. But I think we're going to open it up to a lot of the NASCAR fans who are going to follow that series into the dirt race on August 16th and be surprised at what they find and realize how good it is. We've said for a long time, if you're a NASCAR fan and you come out to watch weekend and sit 15 feet from the fence where sprint cars are going four wide and tumbling, crashing right in front of you, it's pretty exciting to see the drivers get out and uh, say, wow, that's better than a ride at Wonderland. So, so it's, it's quite a deal. So, and I, and I think it will get you a lot of exposure hosting this race. And, and you know, obviously Glenn Steyer's now racing in the Pinty Series. So what's it going to be like watching him do this on his home track? How much of an advantage does he have? You know, I think Glenn will tell you he's just trying to learn the car at all. He's had two races already in the NASCAR Pinty Series. And he said, I don't know what's good or bad with my car. I'm just happy to be here having fun. But I think if there's one race in the NASCAR Pinty Series in his rookie year that He's got the best chance at it with there. He will unequivocally have more laps than anybody in the place, whether it be from grooming it, racing it, or to his own championships in the sprint cars. And I think uh, Glenn, Glenn will be one of the contenders on that night, that's for sure. It'll be fascinating to watch, too, how many are following him, trying to figure out what he's doing. Uh, so uh, what do you got on tap for this weekend? Uh, what, what's going on tonight? So tonight is our 25th season opener. Uh, we're welcoming everybody back to our regular four divisions, which is two divisions of winged sprint cars, plus mini stocks and street stocks, which would be like your four-cylinder Mustangs and Chevy Cobalts, and then your uh, Monte Carlos and Camaros all raced up and ready to go on the track. So four divisions of racing. 
We expect probably 150 teams to be with us. That's one thing. If you've been to any of the other tracks, uh, you'll see when you come to us weekend, the fields are full. We'll probably have 24-plus cars in every class tonight ready to try and get out there and compete. And tell everybody where you are, Clinton. So we are on Chiefsford Road in the beautiful village of Six Nations here in Oshweekin. So uh, come on out to Oshweekin, Ontario. Just Google it. You can't miss it. Oshweekinspeedway.ca has all the information you could ever want. And uh, if you're looking for information on the NASCAR Pinty Series, another quick website you can go to would be NPS, NASCAR Pinty, NPSondirt.com. It'll get you the fast track to Oshweekin and all the NASCAR info you need for that event. All right, Clinton Jeffrey with us, General Manager, Director of Race Night Operations, Oshwegan Speedway, oshweganspeedway.ca to find out more. Kicking off their 25th season uh, tonight. Clinton, uh, great job. Congratulations. Good luck moving forward. Thank you. We're very excited to have everybody back. We appreciate your help getting the word out today. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, let's spitz to the other great team in this uh, in this town. Fresh off a dramatic 25-23 win over Montreal last week. Uh, Ticats going to close out their preseason schedule against the Argos. University of Guelph, remember that? They called it home uh, back in the 2013 Canadian football season. And uh, Andy Fantus, former Ticat and analyst on the Ticats audio network with us now. Andy, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, obviously, Andy, we knew at the beginning of the season or before the season, actually, uh, the, lots of chatter, uh, labor negotiations and such. How does that play into the beginning of the season? Does it or is that all out of your blood by the time, uh, you know, the team gets on the field? You know what? I think it mostly affects the the uh, the new guys coming into the team because they only have so much time. The preseason's already so short, with only two games and a couple weeks of camp to really show what they have. So, uh, you know, thank thankfully they came to a resolution before we missed any games, so that we at least got the two games in. Um, these are the first preseason games in you know three years now. So. But I, th- I think it affects those guys because they gotta you know they gotta try to make the team and and without missing whether they miss four four days of camp there so that was unfortunate but uh i think at this point everybody's past it and uh and looking you know looking forward to closing out the training camp and and um planning for week one next week what's the tonight. biggest challenge what's those big what's the biggest challenge for those new players coming in obviously post negotiation and such then you know just getting here trying to learn the plays trying to learn the game what's the biggest challenge for them in this preseason well, I mean, they're not really part of the, the Players Association yet anyway, so they're kind of just along for the ride, and mm. they don't really understand the ins and outs of, of what you know the players are really fighting for and what the league's fighting for. So um, I think staying focused is probably the biggest challenge, and uh, you know, I guess a few extra days in, with the playbook uh, can't hurt, but it, you can't really simulate having those uh, reps out, out on the field. And what about the veterans that are returning back? What does this this time mean for them? Well, it's uh, you know it's certain people um, based on you know where they're from, where where they are in their careers, uh, have probably different ideas of what they like, you know what they're pushing for in the collective bargaining agreement. So there could cause some internal friction amongst the team, but. Uh, I know that the Tiger Cats specifically have, you know, great leadership. Uh, Chris Van Zyl really leads the point um, with the, uh, as the, you know, the player rep. So 
he he he's able to get the guys together and 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 talk it out, even though there might be some disagreements amongst amongst the the different players. But um, I think that internal dynamic could cause some tension within the team. What is the headspace of the team heading into the season? Uh, what's it like in the room? Uh, you know, Orlando Steinhauer. It's a top-down mentality that it's all about the people first, and then the people cause the. Uh, create the environment, which creates the culture, and and the Thai Cats have a an, an amazing culture. It's something that's uh, really wonderful to be a part of. Um, uh, you know, but of course, looking at the past two seasons, the two CFL seasons, anyways, they mm. came up a little bit short. So it's uh, you know, it's all about bringing that Grey Cup home. Like that's from day one in training camp. They've been saying that every day, every day in meetings. Uh, you know, keep your eye on the prize, and the prize is hoisting the great cup. So it's, it's really, um, you know, high expectations this year, uh, and, and high standards amongst the players. The fans certainly know that what's, uh, what do you learn from going through that? How, what can you take into this season going through that as a team <laughs> going through those losses? Oh yeah. boy. Uh, well, b- pardon me. Yes. Going through the yeah, loss. Yeah. Going through those lot. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think you always learn more from a loss. Um, but I mean, those are those are tough, tough yeah. ones. In 2019, yeah. they had the best season the Ticats have ever had, mm. and were certainly feeling great going into the playoffs. Last year was a bit of the opposite. They were, you know, a good team, but not a not a great team. Game after game, uh, and they really found their stride into the playoffs and uh, and had that that comeback against Toronto in the in the East final. That was, it was just incredible, and then what a game at, at Tim Hortons Field for the Grey Cup. So, anyways, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it leaves you with a sick feeling, and and really, um, you know, you got to just keep that belief that that you're gonna win and you can win, and uh, and don't get discouraged. At this point in the season, are they looking at the Grey Cup? Are they thinking what's next? Are they thinking about party number two or three? <laughs> Yeah, they're definitely they're definitely looking at the Grey Cup. Uh, just one second. Uh, the, yeah, like the, you know, you're always focused on the next game, the next play. Uh, you're always trying to focus in the now, but keeping that that goal of the Grey Cup in in the back of your mind, and uh, and you know, day after day, like I already said, um, keeping that as as the goal and keeping that as the direction amongst the team. And heading back up to Guelph, what's that like? Well, it's bringing back memories. Uh, today was a beautiful day, and then I got on the road, and it was a, like a monsoon almost, and now it's sunny again. <laughs> so uh, that was exactly like 2013. It was, we had the craziest weather games uh, in Guelph, um, whether it be rain, wind, snow, um, heat. Uh, you know, I thought I thought that was a, definitely a year to remember. Uh, I thought the fans had a great time. I know the players did. Um, it was unique in a little, uh, you know, had some challenges to it, but I, I loved how we incorporated, uh, you know, one of the local communities and, and the fan turnout was fantastic. And uh, I think everybody had a great time and, and we had a good season that year. What's it like when you take uh, this game, even if it's an exhibition to another field, to another place where, uh, you know, they don't get it on a regular basis. What's that response like? How does that grow the interest in the game? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I, I I love how they how they do that. I uh, I remember back before I played and even in college they they had a I went to um, an Argos uh, Ticats game in London and and it just it just really got me mm. into the game as a 
guy who hadn't been to a CFL game uh, until that point. So, um, you know, if you get some fans that come out to this game, then maybe they make the trip down the road to, uh, to Tim Hortons Field throughout the season. And, and um, so engaging, engaging the, the communities, I think, in the preseason is a great idea by the league. And because uh, and, this league is all about the fans. All right, so uh, another preseason game, uh, this time Guelph uh, against the Argos. W- w- what can fans expect to see during this? What, from a fan perspective, what are we going to see? Well, I, I don't know if you're going to see much because I don't think it's televised, but if, if you're at the game, um, you know, you're going to see guys competing for You jobs. can hear it here on CHML, though. You sure, you sure can. You'll hear me. <laughs> I'll be on on the pregame show in an hour and a half here, but... Um, yeah, you're going to see guys, you're going to hear guys competing for their jobs. And, and this is really their last chance. The team's going to get made uh, in the coming couple days. And um, so I don't think you're going to see a lot of the, the, you know, if you want to call them the starters playing too much tonight, because it's, this is really an opportunity yeah. for all those other players to either fight for, you know, the pecking order on the team or, or even whether they're going to make the team or not. So uh, should hopefully it'll be a, you know, a, a shortened playbook, simple plays, um, so that the players can just go out there and execute and not make things too comp- complicated. Former Hamilton Ticat legend Andy Fantus, now analyst on the Ticats Audio Network, and of course you can hear this game tonight, University of Guelph Argos uh, and the Ticats preseason action. Good luck, Andy. Thanks for the time. Be well. Oh, thanks for having me on. Have a great night. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Certainly with the escalation and and now in uh, day 100, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Think about that. Uh, it, it has certainly increased tensions not only in that area, but also uh, has made us look a little closer at the Chinese Communist Party and what they are up to. And uh, Global News first reported, citing multiple government sources, that Chinese jets have repeatedly flown so close to a Canadian surveillance plane in the Asia-Pacific region that Canadian pilots could make eye contact with the pilots. Uh, who apparently have sometimes shown their middle fingers. To talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. So what is going on here? Is this just a, a cat and mouse game? What, uh, flexing of muscles? What's going on? We have to do a lot of interpretation and extrapolation, but what seems to be going on is it's a part of a much broader pattern of Chinese um, wolf warrior diplomacy, that is, uh, no, no standing aside and biding your time and hiding your strength. But since Xi Jinping has come to power, consolidated his power, we're seeing a, a pattern of aggressive behavior throughout the region. This is one element of it, a very important element of it, and it also involves, among other things, uh, possibly Chinese sanctions busting. We, we, we should remind ourselves What's going on here, to answer your question, there's a UN operation based in Japan to monitor the United Nations um, approved sanctions regime against North Korea's bad behavior, missiles and nuclear tests. As part of that, there's a lot of patrolling and Canada has since um, 2019, actually started earlier, 2018, but in 2019 it was formalized as Operation Neon, Canada is participating in a multinational enforcement of the sanctions against 
on North Korea, and a lot of those sanctions in particular involved hmm, smuggling of oil and uh, gas uh, uh, against uh, the sanctions. And a lot of that is suspected to originate in China also. So we have a situation where very risky behavior by China is uh, now being exhibited in this instance, but they've also been shadowing uh, as in order to keep the free and open Indo-Pacific, the Taiwan Strait has been transversed by uh, the U.S. and other ships, including ours, to say, yes, that's international water. And China behaves uh, in very careless ways, very frightening ways, actually, in that regard as well. Is this tit for tat, Elliot? In other words, is Canada and the U.S. guilty of the same thing? Not in this fashion. I, I know we've all seen the Top Gun movie and this is it's very tempting mm-hmm. to say this is just Top Gun and what fun it is, particularly with the sequel out. By the way, in that sequel, in the, the original movie, you remember there was a mysterious dogfight at the end with, hmm, were those North Korean fighters? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, perhaps there's some echo of, of, uh, out, of that, out of that movie fantasy. But we do know that China is behaving in a way that is considered dangerous. Does, does that kind of shadowing go on? Does that kind of uh, being sure that the opposition knows you're there and watching, does that go on? Yes, I, I, that's been a standard practice, certainly throughout the Cold War. But this is now in dangerous waters or dangerous air and uh, in a dangerous fashion. How has the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and what's been going on there for 100 days, how does that change the Chinese Communist Party's stance? Does that embolden them? Does that make them take a pause? How has it changed the way they're feeling and doing business? We don't know for sure. One of the possibilities, as perhaps you and I have discussed in the past, is that China is reading this as... um, well, you know, if you brandish nuclear weapons, you can do almost anything, including, uh, we need to talk here about Taiwan, uh, including perhaps uh, threatening an invasion of Taiwan because the West and everybody will back off. The pattern of aggressive behavior by air is, has been Taiwan's fate for some years now. Just yesterday, 30, 30 ships, uh, air, aircraft flew into the uh, Taiwan self-identification zone. That is, if you fly into here, you have to give an announcement. Uh, China has been wearing down Taiwan's capacity to continually having to scramble jets uh, Hmm. to to push back. So the pattern of behavior we see in what we started this conversation with, that is uh, risky behavior by Chinese pilots, in this case involving Canada, that happens on a very regular basis in regard to Taiwan. What is the reaction of Canada and allies to this sort of thing? Hmm. Um, this is a, an evolving and unfolding story. I suspect that uh, we've, we've seen already some, some rally around the UN sanctions regime. Remember, that's what this is about. And a pushback against risky behavior. The uh, Americans will no doubt take close note of this. This is always an American-led operation. Uh, in any of these theaters, uh, a potential uh, conflict. The the key thing here is that Canada cannot be allowed to stand alone against this kind of behavior. And Canada's great strength, 
apart from having some good pilots, is that we operate very well at a multilateral level. So I expect Canada's multilateralism will come into play here and we will be gaining a lot of support since, as I say, this is a pattern of behavior by China, just the latest incidents, and mm. Canada will draw attention to the globe to this related, uh, this kind of behavior now. Oh, Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, uh, Global News reporting, uh, several sources saying Chinese jets have repeatedly flown close to Canadian surveillance planes. Elliot, thanks for the time and insight as always. Be well. Have a great weekend. And thank you. Same to you, Scott. Obviously, uh, we've been talking for the last couple of days about the Queen's uh, Jubilee celebrations and, and what has been going on. And uh, Saad Salman's been nice enough to join us and give us his perspective. He's there. Uh, he's a royal commentator, founder and editor of The Royal Watcher. And with us now, Saad, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me on. So, Saad, are you one, do you have one of those Union Jack blazers? I love those. I've seen them on the news, people wearing the Union Jack blazer. Do you have one of those in your collection? I'm afraid not. <laughs> no, not yet. Not, well, come on. I mean, as founder and editor of the Royal Watcher, I think that's something you might want to add to the wardrobe there, Saad. So uh, first, sorry, go ahead. Yes, definitely something I'd like to have in the future. There you go. Uh, can you actually buy them when you're there? I mean, what's the souvenir situation like uh, there? Um, it's actually not uh, too crazy. It's been pretty hard for me to find souvenir stuff to take back home and not too much i can find on the street so far all right so uh obviously we saw uh, the queen yesterday on the balcony and such there was questions about her health first of all what can you tell us about the queen's health how's she doing so the queen has what the palace is calling episodic mobility issues and that basically means she's at the age of 96 she just gets tired she can't do uh, big events and ceremonies like she used to. So they did announce at the start that she's taking it slow uh, with all the events or attendance is not um, really um, done deal. So they're going to confirm every day. So far, she attended the big event, which is stripping the color. She missed out on today's service. Tomorrow, she was supposed to go attend Epsom Derby, which is a horse-raising thing. Uh, which was basically her very personal uh, favorite event of the whole Jubilee celebration. She's going to miss out on that. There's a concert at Buckingham Palace. She, she probably won't be there as well. So uh, is... Final... Sorry, go ahead. Yes, so the final event is a Platinum Jubilee pageant. And so people are hoping that will kind of be the final hurrah. The royal family are expecting to make uh, appearance on the balcony again. We're hoping that she'll be out for the finale for that. So there is a chance that she may make one more appearance on the balcony before it's all over. Definitely, yeah. All right, so obviously 70 years on the throne, historic in so many different ways. Charles waiting in the wings to take over. Many have questioned the monarchy and such. With this giant celebration, does this solidify the, the monarchy in, in Charles' reign, or, or do, you, do you anticipate that this support will wane uh, once Charles takes over? No, I think the way they have set this up really means that this is um, setting up the monarchy in, during the Queen's lifetime. So they're really banking on the popularity. We've seen Charles and Camilla take center stage at this celebration. Today they were the leading royals. They took part in the procession down the Abbey. They were, have been at the head of everything even more so than the Queen, because the Queen has not been present for most of the stuff. So it's very interesting to see them taking over, and we'll, we're seeing this transition happen right in front of our eyes.
Saad Salman with us, Royal Commentator, founder and editor of the Royal Watcher. Saad, thanks so much for taking the time out of this experience to share it with us and uh, bring us the play-by-play of what's happening. How long are you there? When do you return home? So I'm there for the next three days. I'll return home on the 7th. All right, Saad. Well, thank you so much for the uh, for the reporting and such. Greatly appreciated, and enjoy your weekend. Thank you. All right, that's Saad Salman, royal commentator, founder and editor of The Royal Watcher, talking about the Queen's Jubilee and the festivities, uh, which he's been a part of for uh, several days now and will continue through the weekend. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As we keep you abreast of what is going on this day after uh, the election, and as we have been caught up in that, (laughs) although probably not really, uh, for the last however many days, uh, we have perhaps uh, let slide the thought that it has been 100 days since Russia invaded Ukraine and that ongoing knockdown, dragout, uh, barbaric war that is going on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 100 days now. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Lubomir Luchik, professor with the Royal Military College of Canada and with us now. Lubomir, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you very much. When you first heard of this, Lubermeyer, did you think that 100 days later we'd still be talking about it? Well, to be honest, I think most people in the West, when they understood the threat that Russia represented to Ukraine, and then when the invasion began on the 24th of February, thought Ukraine might last 100 hours, not 100 days. The fact that we're at 100 days and that the Ukrainian military, and in fact the Ukrainian nation, united as never before, has not only resisted the invaders, but has pushed them back and has, in effect, won the war, although not necessarily always on the battlefront, uh, is just remarkable. I think it's become a beacon for people all around the world. I've, I've recently come back from Poland and Georgia and Turkey, and in all three of those countries bordering Ukraine one way or another, I, I had people telling me how sympathetic they are for uh, Ukraine's valiant defense against Russian imperialism. It was it was remarkable. I have never seen anything like this in my in my entire life. You said uh, um, winning the war, just not on the battlefield. What do you mean by that? Or won the well, war, I mean, not that, on the battlefield? Look, you know, the Russian Federation has lots of manpower, lots of equipment, and doesn't care about their soldiers, their fate, their equipment, they just keeps pushing them into the meat grinder. The Ukrainian military has shown itself to be very competent, very capable, but it can't be overwhelmed. When Russia launched the war and attacked on several fronts, it lost on several fronts. You'll remember they lost outside of Kiev, they lost outside of Kharkiv. Um, They have been able, however, to reconcentrate their forces. So they've concentrated in the Southeast and now they're pushing forward. And it's a meat grinder. Ukrainians are killing them in in large numbers. I think the the last number I saw was at least 31,000 Russian war dead. And if you multiply that by three, you get roughly the number of people wounded or maimed. So the Russian military is taking enormous losses, but it keeps coming because there's a lot of them. The Ukrainians better trained, their morale is much higher. They're fighting for their families, for their friends, for their communities, and of course, existentially for the existence of Ukraine and Ukrainians. But the Russians keep coming, and and this is the problem now. The West has provided more and more weapons platforms of various kinds to allow the Ukrainians to defend themselves, and that's helping. But you know, as you pointed out, it's it's a bit of a 
of a brutal, you know, dragged out fight now. And unless Ukraine gets the weapons platforms it needs, who knows how it'll end up. It'll end up uh, with a morale victory. Ukraine, as I say, has never been as united as, as now. People who fled Ukraine just a few weeks ago, 6.5 million, 2 million people have already come back to Ukraine, which is hardly ever mentioned. Mm. People are returning because they see that there is a future in Ukraine, that Ukraine will survive, that Ukraine will endure, that the Russian aggression has been blunted and that there is a prospect of rebuilding. Now, when this happens, whether it's tomorrow, next month, next year, I don't know, no one does. But Ukraine has won the war in that sense. The sad part of it, of course, is that tens of thousands of homes have been destroyed, mm. people's lives disrupted, children killed, women raped. I mean, rape as a, as, a, as a weapon of war has been widely deployed by the Russians. It's a barbaric war. Uh, Ukrainians are fighting uh, with honor um, I, I can't say the same for the Russian invaders. Uh, as you said, many thought this would be over in, in 100 hours. And the fact that uh, NATO has come together and the allies and, and the Ukrainian people to fight back it has just been nothing short of absolutely heroic. Many said, I guess, maybe halfway through where we are now, um, if if Putin retra- uh, retreats and just takes the east, that's the, a win for him. Where he is he in that uh, in that uh, battle? And, and what is a win for him at day 100? I don't think he has a win left. Um, Ukraine has made it very clear that it won't give up territory. You know, people have been saying, well, why don't you just concede? Why don't you sort of give them the east, uh, the Luhansk, uh, Donetsk, the, the so-called Donbass region? Well, that's like 20% of Ukrainian territory. So if you compare that to sort of other European countries, that would be roughly like Italy giving up 40% of its territory or Germany giving up you know, 35% of its territory or France, which is about the same size as Ukraine, giving up 20% of its territory. No European country would settle for this kind of argument, you know, the Kissinger argument. Well, trade trade territory for peace. Why? They, mm. Ukraine didn't invade Russia. Russia invaded Ukraine. It's conducted a brutal war. Ukraine has said, President Zelensky has, I think, correctly said, we are not giving up our territory to placate the bully. And so I don't think Mr. Putin has an exit ramp here, and he shouldn't have one. He should be defeated. In fact, you know, and I know this, I know what this is going to come across like, but the so-called Russian Federation is comprised of many different nationalities under the sort of boot, if you like, of the Russians. The Russian Federation has to collapse and it will collapse. It, it's, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. Ukraine has been subjugated and invaded by the Tsarist Russian Empire, by Nazi Germany, by the Soviet Union and other states. All of those empires have disappeared. Ukraine's still there. Mm. Um, and dates back to the 17th century. One day there'll be no Russian Federation, and that's a good thing. Now, Dr. Lubomir, this has to happen. Putin, Ukraine has to win this war because essentially Putin has said he wants to erase not just the state, not just the country called Ukraine, but Ukrainians as a people, as a nation. But like saying to someone, I want to eliminate Canada. Okay, you might say, well, Canada broke up. Uh, you know, Quebec seceded. The West went one way. The, the Quebec went another way. Ontario went out on its own, whatever. He's actually saying not just destroy a state or a country, a territory. He's actually saying destroy a nation. Erase it. They're just little Russians. They're, they don't really exist. We're mm-hmm. just going to absorb them. Um, you know, 
I can use a, a trope from you know modern cinema. Resistance is futile, say the board. Well, no, it's not futile. It's what Ukrainians are demonstrating. That's why they're so widely admired around the world. Ukrainians have shown bravery like no one expected. And as a result of that, um, Ukraine will fight to free its occupied territories and it will win the war um, even if there are battlefield failures and there mm. will be. There will be setbacks. I mean, look at, you know, you're talking about 150 million against 45 million or 40 million. But the reality of it is um, Ukraine has given the world a demonstration of what it means to be a free society like I, I could never have expected, even with all the things I was told as a boy. By my I, parents, I think the rest, the rest of the... I think the rest of the world is certainly the rest of the world certainly is a learning a lesson from all of this. Oh, Dr. Lubomir Luchik with us, professor with the Royal Military College of Canada. Uh, Lubomir, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. What excites me the most, what just pumps me up, are all the new faces I see out there. I am so grateful for all your support over the years. It's what keeps me going. And, and to the people of Ontario, thank you. Uh, Doug Ford, Premier of Ontario, wins a second go-round with another majority, uh, more seats than last time. The Liberals, uh, Del Duca doesn't get a seat, fails to uh, even come back to official party status, steps down. NDP, the official opposition, uh, Andrew Horvath uh, also stepping down. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, and is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I just let out a big yawn, Scott, and it's not because I'm talking <laughs> to you, but we're finally at the end of the Ontario election. I, I think it's hilarious because, uh, you know, everybody's saying what a dull election this is and, and sort of blaming Doug Ford for that. And it's like, isn't that the, uh, isn't that the role of the opposition to, uh, to upset those apple carts? Well, or, or, or the, what, the 56% of people who decided not to vote i mean you know you can yeah you, you earn the right to complain when you participate um so you can look look in the mirror but uh and the opposition i think you make a good point failed to ignite an enthusiasm amongst the public it may have been harder than usual to do it because of what we've lived through over the last two and a half three years but when they look back and assess this election campaign their prosecution of the campaign certainly is something they're going to have to dig into. And I think uh, just the other quick point I'd add is, you know, I think it's clear now after two elections um, since Premier Ford has won, starting 2018, liberals have a bigger problem than just changing leaders. They've got to figure out who and uh, what they want to be going forward because they continue to languish in, in third and still don't have double-digit representation in the province of Ontario. Uh, many, um, especially on the losing side, are saying, look, nobody turned out. Uh, well, that's because they didn't bring their people out. I mean, usually the high turnout comes when people want change. Clearly, yeah. they didn't want change, and the left stayed home. Yeah, I think there's a lot. There's that, uh, how organized they were. I mean, I have to tell you, yesterday, the Conservatives, and I live in Ottawa Centre, which is now still an NDP riding. I can't think of when it's been a Conservative riding, but credit to the Conservative candidate. He must have texted, emailed, called his get-out-the-vote team, did 
seven or eight times yesterday. And I suspect that was happening all across the province. So just from a mechanical perspective, uh, conservatives, even in ridings they weren't going to win, appeared to be much further ahead. And again, something for the campaign teams to look at. And Ford, uh, Ford ran a very good campaign. Lots of criticism can be levied about a lack of appearance and you know, he didn't say much, but it worked, right? He read the mood of the province well, I think. Uh, people perhaps being sick of politicians being in their face, even in election campaigns. He knew perhaps there was this disconnect in this election campaign, and he didn't give uh, the public any real reason to be riled, and his opponents uh, couldn't uh, see create create those reasons. Uh, you know, I, I think people are in very much a different headspace now post-pandemic than they were pre-pandemic. And, and a lot of the, the, the points or the issues that you pointed out. Um, it, it appears to me that the NDP and liberals ran the exact same, cam- exact same campaign they've been running for years. Uh, and it, it's worked for them in the past. But in a post-pandemic world, those issues aren't the top issues right now. Uh, the top issues are pretty much all, with the exception of health care, are, are, are economic issues, whether it's the affordability of housing, the affordability of food, affordability of energy, what have you. And it just seemed that the, the opposition didn't even have a, a comeback for that. They were just sitting on their hands. They had nothing. Well, I think part of it is the mess there. There is a messenger issue, I think, uh, though you got to give Andrea Horvath some credit. I mean, though she had a lesser seat count than last time, she now has kept the uh, the NDP at official opposition for a second uh, second period. I think that's the first time that's ever happened in Ontario. Um, so they, the, pub, the public that did vote gives her credit for uh, believability in, on health care and, and acting on health care, whereas the Liberals, I think Del Duca was trying to be the custodian of, of health care and the uh, uh, the, 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 the true progressive in this race, and he got outfoxed by the NDP on all of that, because again, I think they have a bigger identity issue they have to sort out, uh, and until they do, they're going to have uh, troubles gaining ground. You talked about identity issues. How has politics changed in a post-pandemic world? Um, you know, we were we, we were talking about divisiveness and extremism. Uh, you know, certainly not at the beginning of the pandemic, but certainly at the end. And then we have, um, you know, a conservative premier who seems to be able to unite Ontarians. What sort of message? How is this changing politics? Uh, he's gone from being Jason Kenney-like to Bill Davis-like. Exactly. Uh, and I think he recognized the mood shift. I think, uh, look, um, I, I've talked to other political leaders and advisors about this, and it's not just an Ontario thing, but I think Ford recognized people right now just want a mental break from politicians being in their face. They also want a mental break from divisive wedge-type politics. Mm. They just want to use his slogan, and I'm sure that's where they got it, get it done. They want things to be done. They don't want the fighting. They don't want all the nonsense, at least right now. And Ford, to his credit, again, you may not be a fan of his, um, but he has demonstrated what good good winning leaders demonstrate that you need to learn. You need to course correct. You'll remember, Scott, two years ago, he was dead man walking. Yeah. Uh, And who's the guy that's gone now? The aforementioned Jason Kenney. Nobody would have ever guessed that. Kenny didn't course correct. Doug Ford did. Uh, I mean, it's a simplistic comparison, but it starts at that level. So 
Now, Ford, Ford has more political skills than people are prepared to give him, and I think, yeah, you know, even his harsher critics would ad- admit of the three people who were just campaigning, and as Mr. Kretchen used to say, you know, you you don't campaign against God, you campaign against the people you're competing against. Uh, he came across as the most, when he did appear, as the most authentic and uh, least contagious, uh, contentious, excuse me, uh, of the bunch. I think people want more substance now and less form. They want more stuff than fluff, and I think that's just the reality of a war. Done, I think. Yeah, you know? and again, yeah, I believe so. Get her done as, as yeah. simple and annoying as it was. Get her get done. You know, you know, just stop talking to me. Stop being in my face. Just will you guys do something so Ford can say, yeah, I'll pave a road, I'll build more hospitals and schools, and you know that may not address the health care challenges. It won't. It doesn't address the educational challenges, but he's doing some part of that. There's always educational and health care challenges. What have the feds learned from the PCs? We've only got about 30 seconds here. The federal conservatives? Yes. Uh, well, I hope they learn that wedges aren't always the way to go, uh, and picking fights uh, are not the way to go, but perhaps the biggest lesson you shouldn't be challenging conservative uh, people's purity. Uh, Doug Ford proved, particularly with his cozying up with labor, the more you people you include, the bigger your coalition, the bigger your chance of winning. Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacostata. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, buddy. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. It's been a very bizarre, strange, frightening few days for uh, schools in the region. Multiple threats discovered. Also, uh, situations with replica guns and such. Uh, and obviously, Hamilton having its share of issues like this as well. Let's bring in Constable Indy Barrage. Or sorry, uh, uh, Barrage, Media Relations, Hamilton Police Service, and is with us now. Indy, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you very much for having us, Scott. So Um, give us a little bit of a rundown about what's been happening here, sort of a timeline, because it seems like all of this is happening at once. Yeah, it's uh, after the first incident at uh, Bishop Tonis that was reported to us uh, last week, Friday. There's been uh, one after another. Um, The Hounds Police have continued to investigate these series of threats uh, that have been written in different schools throughout the Hamilton area. And what what can you tell us about what's been written? What's the significance of this? Why is this? Why are people frightened about this? Well, after, like a lot of us know, after the incidents that's happened in the states, it's it's just a scary thought. Like once once yeah. the threats were made, parents are having to make difficult decisions. Staff at the schools, uh, school administration are having to make these difficult decisions and discuss a topic that we should never have to talk about, which is: Do we open the school? Do we send our kids to school? Um, are kids going to be safe when they're at school? Uh, it's it just all these things are up in the air. Um, and that's what the, uh, the individuals that wrote these messages, I don't know if they know the fear they were going to instill and what, what the reasoning behind this is. But uh, the health police are taking these threats extremely seriously. And uh, we're going to follow through with uh, criminal charges uh, once these individuals are identified. And is this part of a social media thing? I mean, how do you how, how do you balance um, you know uh, uh, stupid pranks with something that's a real threat? We don't know what's causing this. I, yeah. There's nothing to indicate that this is a uh, social media uh, challenge of some sort. It's mm. just I, I don't know what's causing these to kind of keep happening. As of Friday, we had the one at Bishop Tonis. 
Um, end of day Wednesday, we had uh, three other schools added to that. There was uh, Sir John de Brebeuf's Catholic Secondary School. There was Westdale. Um, and then there was Hillcrest. Um, and then yesterday, we added another five. Uh, St. Thomas More. Hmm. Um, there was uh, St. John Henry Newman uh, Catholic School. Winston Churchill. Coots uh, Paradise. And uh, Bishop Ryan. And that was, uh, so by the end of yesterday, we had nine, and uh, today we got one more. Uh, this one to, uh, I think it was a, a church, oh no, my apologies, I'm trying to remember the school now. I'm getting all. This one was uh, to a school on High Road, 25 High Road, I can't, can't remember the name of the school myself right now. So two arrests have been made so far, Indy? Uh, two arrests have been made, yes. Uh, there was a 14-year-old uh, female of Hamilton that uh, has been arrested for mischief under 5,000 uh, in relation to the threat that was made at uh, St. John de Brebeuf. And uh, early this morning, we arrested a uh, 19-year-old male of Hamilton uh, in relation to the threats uh, made to Westdale Secondary School, and that individual was charged with uh, utter threats caused death or bodily harm times two. Uh, both parties have been released on undertakings and uh, have court dates in the upcoming days. Any reason to believe any of this is linked, or is this just copycat stuff? Uh, there's nothing to indicate that these are uh, these are related. Uh, police, uh, Hamilton police, are investigating these as a separate incidents. All I guess all ten incidents is a separate instances at this time, uh, and they're spelling throughout the city. So it's not even being investigated by uh, the same in, uh, detective hmm. branches. Uh, in Division One, uh, we have the criminal investigation branch. They're taking care of theirs, and Division Two, and same in Division Three, the criminal investigation branches are taking care of their own areas at this time. I understand there's only so much you can say as these investigations are underway, but um, obviously Westdale School closed today because of the threat. Uh, anything you can tell us why this one was closed, the others not? Um, what's the precaution? What's the threat? That would be a question that would have to be brought forth to the uh, the school, the public school board themselves. They have to make that decision. Um, I found myself yesterday evening and uh, early this morning taking fielding calls from parents, Concerned parents and uh, staff at schools and even schools themselves uh, asking, essentially asking for the, our opinion on if they should open or if they should send their children to school. And I, and I, I had to answer them in a way that this is a discussion and a decision they'd have to make in their own households and in regards to schools. And, and I kind of had to direct it back to them. I said, listen, all we can do is present you with uh, the facts we have. And that's a decision that you are going to have to make on your own uh, uh, within the schools or within their households. But uh, police were out. Uh, on the stopping grounds, we're out uh, at schools today. Uh, our patrol officers knew of the schools that were uh, listed off, and we were in the areas to ensure uh, the safety and security of uh, students and staff that attended school today. Um, and we can say that uh, the threats, most, a lot of the threats indicated that Friday, June 3rd would be, uh, I guess, the date. That was the date that was referenced, and uh, we had none of the threats uh, substantiated. What advice do you give to parents, Indy, when they call you with these concerns? I mean, obviously, to go through any sort of situation or have the, you know, the ETF team show up at your school is, is kind of a shocking experience. What what do you say to parents? Where are the kids? You know what? I'm a parent myself, so it's just a decision and a conversation that we shouldn't even be having to think about or make. Um, hmm. Unfortunately, all I can do is just follow the provide them with all the facts and be as transparent as possible. And that's what the health police have been trying to do with this, uh, with these instances, provide as much information to the parents and staff and school board so that they can make a, uh, an educated decision and uh, have the information in front of them.
Constable Indy Barrage with us, Media Relations, Hamilton Police Service, talking about all the incidents going on in uh, Hamilton area schools, high schools, in regard to the June 3rd situation. And my goodness, if anybody can help in any way, give Hamilton Police Service a call with any sort of information. Indy, thanks so much for the uh, for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck with this moving forward. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. You know, there's been so much going on, it's hard to remember uh, about the Freedom Convoy uh, protests that uh, took over Ottawa in the wintertime and uh, the ensuing Emergencies Act that was called, and then they were inquiry into that Emergencies Act, and and was it justified in all of this? The RCMP has already testified that uh, they didn't need it, they had it under control without that. Uh, however, um, the responsibility sort of seemed to be passed from the Prime Minister to uh, the Ottawa, sorry, the Ottawa Mayor, and then the Ottawa Police Chief, and for the first couple of weeks, everybody just kind of stood around with their hands in their pockets, and and really didn't do much, and kind of watched this whole thing uh, escalate without any real sort of interference or or anything by police. Um, just sort of stood down and, and watched it all grow, and then once we got to the two or three week mark, uh, then people realized this is going to take. Uh, a little bit of effort to move it out of here. Uh, and the inquiry continues. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President Borealis and Threat Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS Allen, uh, analyst and is with us now. Phil, as always, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. My pleasure, Scott. How are you this good Friday? Uh, so far, so good. Can't complain. Always uh, heading into a weekend. So the police chief testifies before this Emergencies uh, Act inquiry. Is he the fall guy here? He says um, that they didn't have the intelligence to know uh, that it would end up to to the extent that it, that it did. What are your thoughts on his testimony? I, I do think he is the fall guy in many ways, Scott. I mean, they, people were very critical of Ottawa Police's lack of action, I think, when this, when this took place. In terms of the intelligence, whether it was there or not, I mean, it's hard for me to say because I don't work in intelligence anymore, but I do know that the Integrated Terrorism Assessment Center, ITAC, which is housed within CSIS, it's a multi-departmental uh, office, did provide an intelligence assessment in advance of the of the convoy about problematic elements who may bring violence, which in the end didn't, didn't materialize. But if the intelligence didn't make it, Scott, this just speaks to an issue you and I have talked about a lot, and that's the lack of an intelligence culture here in Canada. Maybe the distribution system's not working properly, but I find it hard to believe that intelligence was not available in advance. I know that CSIS, my former organization, has upped its game in terms of what we call the far right writ large. So I'd be very surprised if the intelligence wasn't available and maybe just didn't get to the right people at the right time. It just seemed to me, watching all of this unfold, that nobody seemed to take it seriously or or give any people the time of day or even want to talk about it. They just all thought it would just dissipate and go away. I mean, whether it's the Prime Minister, whether it's the Mayor of Ottawa, it was just bizarre to let people to, to sit by and watch this thing build, and nobody even seemed to address it until it was too late. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and it's really important, I think, to emphasize that, you know, this was not a violent incident, really. I mean, it was inconvenient. No. I mean, Wellington Street was closed. There were traffic jams. There was some boorish behavior. And maybe, you know, you have to look in the mirror and say, well, what do we have to have in place when this happens next time in terms of do we have the resources? Do we have the, the, the policies and the procedures to prevent it from getting out of control? That's if we can get that from this then the inquiry would have been will, will, will have been of use because we now know what to do when the inevitable happens again. And you and I are talking about it three years from now. 
I have a hard time believing, Phil, and maybe you can lend some insight to this, that, you know, Parliament Hill, whoever the law enforcement agencies that work together, uh, security, whatever, to keep that city and, and specifically the politicians safe, they didn't have some sort of plan. They didn't, did they never imagine that this would ever happen? I mean, does it happen to happen before you, uh, you, you know, you install a plan of some sort? I just can't believe they weren't prepared for this. Hard to believe, eh? I don't remember Scott back in 2014. I mean, Michael Zappi Bull got into the center block before he was shot after he killed Nathan Cirillo. Yeah. He's the most extremist. So he got that close. I do know that they changed their policies and plans after that. There were too many cooks in the kitchen, if you will, in terms of different, you know, there was, there was parliamentary yeah. police and Senate police and RCMP and Ottawa police. So they did a lot of changes when that happened. But you're right. I mean, but it's that fine line between democracy and freedom and access to politicians and security. And, and it, that's a really tough game to play. So I don't want to cast aspersions on any one actor, but you're right. I think that you know, obviously these are lessons to be learned. And thankfully in this case, uh, no one really got hurt. And, that, that, and we should be thankful for that, I think, at the end of the day. Uh, your thoughts on this Emergency Act inquiry? Are we getting the answers we need? I doubt it. You know, I, I was very critical when the act was invoked. Uh, it, I don't think it warranted it. Certainly, you know, we were hearing the RCMP commission didn't ask for it. Ottawa police didn't ask for it. So was this a political way of ending this thing? Was it convenient for the Trudeau government? Perhaps. But Scott, you, you know, you put a, a damper on freedom of, of expression and freedom of, of protest only in the direst of circumstances where you're really worried about violence happening. And I don't think that was the case in Ottawa this January and February. So I, I think the government has a lot to answer. You know, why did you, I mean, this, this was the old, remember the old War Measures Act, Scott, during the SQ yeah, yeah. days? I mean, yeah. back then it was necessary. In January, in February, it wasn't. So I hope there's some lessons learned about, you know, don't, don't bring in draconian laws and, and, and policies when they're not required. I just can't believe this was all about 10% of the population that was not vaccinated. It just seems absolutely absurd. We should be celebrating the 90% instead of trying to vilify the other 10. Absolutely. And, you know, it was a real dog's breakfast factor. There were conspiracy theorists. There were people angry at the yeah. Trudeau government, the so-called F. Trudeau signs. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't, the, a, 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 I think, a move that had a lot of coherence to it. And at no. the end of the day, like I said, it really wasn't violent. So let's, let's keep our powder dry for when it really turns violent next time. Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, Distinguished Fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former analyst for CSIS. As always, Phil, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, a, uh, a, a provincial election yesterday. Woo-wee, it's over now. And uh, here we go for another election cycle, uh, a little bit of peace and quiet, hopefully. To break it all down, let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He's with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I hope you are, too. Thanks so much. Uh, your thoughts on uh, the results and the campaign in general as a political science professor? Well, I mean, I think it was uh, it really showed the strengths of the Conservative Party in knowing what its electorate is and uh, having an ability to go out and uh, capture those votes. Uh, you know, I think you know, we had a campaign where at the beginning, you know, 60% of, of uh, people surveyed were saying they wanted to change an election. And I think the Conservatives did very well in, you know, uh, going and finding their own voters in that 40% block, which under our voting system is, you know, enough to to win a pretty uh, substantial minority, as uh, sorry, majority government as they did yesterday. So, uh, you know, I think in that way, it was a very controlled campaign, uh, not giving many reasons for uh, Ontarians to get worked up uh, and motivated to vote against them. So also keeping that 60%, uh, uh, you know, at home and, and not particularly motivated to vote. 
I got the feeling the opposition parties ran a, a similar election as to what they have been in the past, whereas in a post-COVID world, in you know a post-Ukraine, uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine world, people's priorities are a little bit different now. Um, and it seemed one identified with that, the others didn't. Is that accurate? Well, I mean, I, I guess we'd have to know more about how voters were seeing these things. I, I mean, I'm not sure that we really saw, uh, you know, a... Uh, an out-of-touch campaign. I mean, we saw during the pandemic a lot of concern about kind of broken systems, uh, you know, uh, around the healthcare system, uh, concerns about people and housing. And, and these were, you know, things that came up in the campaign, uh, you know, when 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 the, the campaign got moving. So, you know, I'm not sure we saw that so much. I mean, I do think we saw parties uh, of the Liberals and the NDP who were fighting elections past. You know, really this idea yeah. that uh, yeah. the goal is to kind of win a progressive primary in the first couple of weeks of the campaign to be the party going against the conservatives and then using the last two weeks to kind of go hammer and tongs at the conservatives and, and remind voters about, you know, why they might want to change the government. Uh, but, you know, this time out, uh, you know, they spent the whole campaign really still trying to fight that primary and never, you know, getting any traction and moving against the conservatives. And, you know, in that kind of context, uh you know, it's not surprising that we had such low electoral turnout because, you know, they're spending their time fighting each other rather than, you know, trying to go out and, you know, win some of those uh, uncommitted voters. Well, in fact, non-voters uh, by, you know, making themselves, you know, the champion of some kind of alternative vision or some, you know, vision against the conservatives or being the champion of a different uh, way of doing things. So uh, I think they really got stuck, uh, you know, in trying to fight, fight on the first front of a two-front war and never really mm. got out to try and reach Ontarians. Many are talking about the low voter turnout today, uh, as opposed to the last election where people wanted change and there was a much higher voter turnout. Does that mean that people were satisfied with the status quo or that the opposition just didn't do enough to ignite them and, and get them out of their seats? Well, I mean, I guess the two are somewhat related. I mean, you know, people yeah. are often have complex views. And so, yeah, they... You know, they aren't necessarily happy with the status quo, but, you know, maybe the alternative isn't that interesting to them. Or, you know, the, the case isn't made strongly enough that, yeah, you're going out and voting is going to be important of, you know, part of a, of a move to change. I mean, here, I think the, the opposition parties were, uh, you know, hobbled a bit by their inability to make progress against one another. So if you, you know, go into election day and the, you know, the polls are saying 40 for the conservatives, you know, 24, 25 for the two opposition parties, well, you know, why go out and vote? It, it seems like a lost cause, you know, whereas if, you know, either the Liberals or the NDP had been able to steal five, six percent from the other and it was kind of looking more like a, you know, a 40 to 32 to 20, well, right. then maybe, uh, you know, there would have been a bit more incentive for people to go out and vote. But yeah, you know, I think the inability of the opposition parties to federate the, you know, we need change vote meant that that looked like a kind of lost cause and for people who aren't that engaged in politics uh, you know a further reason to do something else with their day yesterday uh obviously um uh, del duca and horbath both stepping down your thoughts on on uh, on doing that because both coming at this from very different perspectives yeah i mean for andrea horvath i mean i think uh, you know after the last election it was pretty clear that uh, she was given free reign to go and win this next one and that if she didn't succeed in that, it was time for her to go. And certainly after 13 years as a leader, you know, you're looking at the next election, she would have been there for 17 years. Uh, I think even this time in public perceptions, the idea that she'd been around a long time, that if people had really wanted her to be premier, they would have swung to her at the end of the 2018 campaign. was you know, sort of part of the way of, of how she was seen by the electorate, and it, it didn't help her. 
right? particularly if she was trying to win liberal votes, it's, it was clear that she wasn't really pulling those liberal voters. They weren't convinced that she was their champion uh, to beat Ford. Uh, you know, of course, the other side of it is Stephen Del Duca, uh, you know, clearly didn't even motivate uh, liberal supporters, because if you go and ask, you know, Ontarians what their political identity is, the liberals will be in first place or tied with the conservatives, um, you know, uh, and, you know, somewhere in the 30s. But uh, he, Del Duca got nowhere close to that in terms of the polling, kind of an indication that he didn't have the confidence of, of the liberal electorate. You know, in that kind of context, after a, a devastating result, you know, maybe if he was much more popular than his party, there'd be a case for him to stay on. But, you know, if he was clearly less popular than his party, well, you know, clearly time to go. So what does the NDP need to do here? Obviously, still the official opposition, but looking for a new leader. What's their challenges moving forward? Well, I mean, ultimately, if they're going to be more than a party with a strong regional base in like the Niagara Peninsula, the Hamilton area, the sort of major urban centers of southwest Ontario and the north, right? If they they want to be more than that and be a party that uh, challenges for power, they have to win in the suburbs of Toronto. So they need to find, you know, ultimately a candidate who can appeal to, you know, what I was just talking about, that large share of the uh, Ontario population who see themselves as liberal you know, in some cases, maybe also some who are see themselves as conservative and convince them that not actually, you know, they want to be new Democrats, you know, and so they, they need to find a way of talking to people in the suburbs, which, you know, they haven't been successful at in Ontario, probably since the 1980s, you know, maybe in, you know, parts of Alberta and parts of BC, they've had more success in that. They've had some success in the suburbs of Winnipeg, but in, in, in Ontario, they haven't unlocked that. So finding a leader who can do that you know, without seeming then kind of, you know, forgetting about, uh, you know, the existing base, uh, you know, will be uh, crucial. I don't know if that person exists, but I guess that will be, hmm. uh, you know, the, the challenge for the NDP is to, to find someone who can, you can talk about the suburbs and, you know, why it's in the interest of people who live there to, to support the, the new democratic uh, policies and vision. Peter, just got less than a minute left. What about the Liberals? Uh, obviously, still not official party status. I believe one more seat than Kathleen Wynne won. Uh, soul-searching there. What do they need to do? Well, you know, find uh, lightning in a bottle, I guess. Mm. Find someone who's willing to, uh, you know, energize the people who think of themselves as Liberals. And so maybe part of it is they need Doug Ford to fall down. You know, in another four years, he'll be four years older. There'll be yeah. a bit more around him, perhaps a young, dynamic leader. Um, you know, would be a, a way of winning back uh, that strength in the suburbs. And, you know, if they get there, then there's a like vote that went green or NDP this time that might, you know, go to them to beat the Conservatives. So, yeah, they need to set those dominoes in motion. But, uh, you know, it's hard to know exactly who that leader would be. Surprised that the PCs pulled in so much of the union vote? I mean, we'll have to see, you know, how big that is. But, uh, I mean, they certainly have had a working class vote uh, in federal elections in, in recent years. I mean, they appeal to uh, people in the construction trades, and that's not surprising mm-hmm. if you're promising to build subways and make it easier to build subdivisions. I mean, that's kind of a, a bread and butter, uh, a bread and butter constituency for the conservatives, and has been for some time. Peter Grape with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about the election. Of course, results last night, uh, and Premier continues his majority. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. And you too. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing great, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Your thoughts on uh, the election and what we've seen uh, unfold and any surprises, the low voter turnout, anything? What are your thoughts? 
you know, Scott, let's start with that. Let's start with the low voter turnout because I, I'm I, I'm not surprised about it based on what I saw and talking to people at the polling station yesterday. When I went there, there was, I think, one other family who was in the polling station. Yeah. I thought, oh, well, maybe I just picked, like, the greatest time ever. But it turns out that may have been, like, all day yesterday was the greatest time ever. But here's what I don't get. We've been hearing all day from experts saying, you know, maybe the fact that people were hearing that Ford was going to win. Yeah deterred people from coming. I don't understand that. And here's why. If you don't like Doug Ford or don't like the conservatives, <laughs> exactly. and there are people who are out there who don't, we know, would hearing that he's going to win a majority not inspire you to vote rather than stay yeah. home? Yeah. I, like To me, it seems like it should be the opposite reaction than to say, well, I'm just going to throw in the towel then because you know I don't have a chance. If, if I hear that the person I don't like is going to win, that makes me more inclined to go out and vote against them. Well, people usually turn up to vote. I usually get a high voter turnout when people want change. Uh, it appears people didn't, people didn't want change this time or that the alternatives that they were supplied didn't encourage them to want change. I mean, to me, this leans more on the opposition, not on the incumbent. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, look, this is a... Um, look, Andrea Horvath is what Andrea Horvath is. She's run four elections now, and, you know, she's, she's as I say, we, we have a pretty good idea what kind of numbers Andrea Horvath can draw, having gone through it four times. This was a massive, stunning, overwhelming, slapdown indictment of Stephen Del Duca. I mean, this is, yeah. this is one of, honestly, I mean, he's a, he's a pleasant man. He's been on my show a number of times. He's a very nice guy, but this mm-hmm. is one of the all-time political or provincial failures around here. How you could have four years with the Liberal Party brand, don't forget, that was the government for, what, 13 years, 14, 15, whatever 15, it was. 15, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you've got four years to rebuild, and you get one more seat and don't even win your own seat. I mean, it's, it's, it's stunning. I think, too, that post-COVID-19, post-Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, uh, I don't think you can run the same campaign that you've been running for the last couple of decades. And I think that's what the opposition did. I think that the issues changed. I think they become more economic. And I, yeah. I don't think there was a lot of opportunity there for the opposition to put their their best, put, uh, best foot forward because they really don't have much of a policy on economics. Well, that and, you know... What do you think the odds are? And, you know, down the road when the postmortems come out and people behind the scenes start telling stories, we'll find out. But what do you think the odds are that the opposition parties were totally geared up for this election campaign with all their efforts were going to be on how Ford screwed up COVID? Absolutely. When the the election starts, nobody cares about COVID anymore. Immediately, it's like immediately they knew when this campaign started that they all had the the wrong approach, the wrong strategy. Yeah, we we put all of our, well, you know, all all of our efforts into one area where we really think they're weak, and it's an area that honestly nobody really cared about. And so, you know, if COVID, if this election was four months ago, five months earlier, Doug Ford may have been in real trouble. But the timing was perfect for him. What do you think the federal conservatives learned from the provincial conservatives? Because during the last couple of federal elections, uh, you know, Doug Ford was bad news. They didn't want anything to do with him. Uh, now uh, he seems to be leading what is the new conservative brand, uh, and it makes the others look like, well, your granddad. 
Yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting one because uh, Pierre Polyev, who's the favorite still right now, is not the, it's not the Doug Ford approach. It's a little yeah. more bombastic. And that said, you're also going after a different target here. P, uh, Pierre, I, I call him Pierre Trudeau. Can you believe it? Justin Trudeau is a well-known person who now has people who really like him or who really, really don't like him. And I think you're in a slightly different position. Did, did anyone, I mean, we knew, as they say a moment ago, everyone knows Kathleen Wynne. Uh, man, what is wrong with me today? Uh, Andrea Horvath. Everyone knows Andrea Horvath. Nobody really knew Stephen Del Duca. So how much time yeah. are you going to put into going after Stephen Del Duca as a leader or as the head of the party? Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator, and he's coming right up after the 6 o'clock news. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. No problem, and hopefully I'll get some of the names right on my own show. <laughs> hey, we're all a little punchy after this. I get it. Uh, you have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the two Wills, Diane and Dave, for helping out as always. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to give us the last word. Bob here. The election's over. Thank God. I'm headed to church and then out for a few drinks. You go! Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.